Dads, thank you for all the goodness you've brought to our lives, for guiding us with wisdom and truth when we insisted we knew it all, pointing out the right path even as we were taking a sharp right turn, showing us to love God and love others while we were acting wholly unlovable, chasing after us and walking us all the way home. Your compassion-filled heart and your merciful ways, your insistence that we don't have to be like everyone else, surely made us into the people we are today. Today, we want to honor you by thanking you for all you've done. Thank you for all the time in the practice fields. Thank you for all the long talks into the night. Thank you for not giving up on us when everyone else had. Thank you for believing in us far past what we could see in ourselves. If we're only able to visit you today in our memories, we know that what you gave to us still lives on. It's what we're able to give away now to those we love. It's a gift that is everlasting and valuable. And for those of us who sit here today without a father's love to remember, without all the things that should have been, we take the time to thank God, who's a father to the fatherless, who gathers those left behind as his own children. Happy Father's Day, and thank you for being our dad. All right, and a happy Father's Day to the dads out there. We do appreciate you so much. As you turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians, we're going through a series through that book of the Bible. And the reason why we chose to land in this chapter, chapter 13 for Father's Day, is because there's a verse in there in verse 11 where the Apostle Paul says something rather intriguing. He says this, I'll put it on the screen. He says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man... I gave up childish ways. And I remember first reading that verse and thinking, what do you mean when you became a man, Paul? When did you do that? And, and how did you do that? And what do you mean you gave up childish ways? What ways? What specific things did you give up when that transition occurred? And I wanted to go into that verse and, and look at that verse and understand it in a new way, especially uh, for us dads, but I think you'll find application for this question that applies to all of us as well. And so today, that's the question I want to think about. What does it mean to transition and become a man? Uh, there's a poem written by a frustrated uh, young man that perhaps gets at the heart of that question. Let me read that poem to you. What is a man? Is he someone who's strong and tall? Or is he taught and talented as he plays ball? Is he someone who's hardened enough? Who smokes and drinks and swears enough? Is he someone who chases women hard with a quest to conquer or without dropping his guard? Is he someone with a good business mind who gets ahead of the others with his nose to the grind? Or is he someone who tries his best while not really caring for any of the rest? What is a man? Does anyone know? Tell me, who is the prototype? To whom shall I go? That's a really good question. And I believe the Bible has an answer to that question that's relevant not just to the dads here in the room today, but to all of us, actually. It gives us this picture of maturity in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. As we turn to that chapter, I'm not overstating when I say that what we're going to talk about here today, by far, is the most important thing that you're going to hear. It's more important than anything else we've talked about in this entire series of 1 Corinthians, in fact, if you remember nothing else about this series through 1 Corinthians, this is the chapter that you need to remember. 
It's so important that everything else pales in comparison. If we get this right, it detoxifies all of our relationships. It detoxifies our fatherhood. It it helps to cleanse our marriage relationships, our parenting relationships, our children's relationships, and our church relationships. And if we do not get this right, friends, then it really doesn't matter what else we do. And so what is that thing that is the most important thing? Well, of course, what I'm talking about is the supreme virtue of love. Uh, The title of my message comes from the very last verse in chapter 12, where Paul says, now let me show you the most excellent way. And so you'll see three different parts to this passage. It breaks up quite easily. In verses 1 through 3, we'll talk about the importance of love. And then in verses 4 through Eight, we'll talk about the definition of love, and then we'll see in verses 9 through 13 the perfection of love. This is the most excellent way. For you Mandalorian fans out there, this is the way. This is the way that the Bible instructs us to live our lives. This is the way. So that's where we're headed. Before we do that, let's pray. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we look at your word today, we're reminded that in many ways the whole Bible is about love. The motivation of love, the reason for love, the way of love, it's all about love because, God, you tell us in your word that you are love. And so we ask that you teach us in a fresh way today something about yourself so that we might better reflect you. Lord, for our congregation, we pray today. We think about our brother, Paul Wilford, who lost his mother this week. We pray that you'd bring them comfort and promises from your word that would give them peace. We rejoice alongside our brother and sister, Caleb and Leanna Moore, who gave birth to their baby girl, Hannah. Lord, we celebrate this new life. Lord, we give thanks for all good things, and most of all, our relationship with you. So as we look to your word today, would you nurture and bless and strengthen our relationship with the author of this word, Uh, for it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Uh, Movement number one, the importance of love. Paul begins with these familiar words, but try to think about it in fresh ways, because I know you're familiar with this. He says this, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now, typically, we hear this passage read, and often it's read as a standalone passage. We hear this read at weddings. Uh, We hear this read at secular occasions. We may even hear this read in non-Christian contexts. But friends, what I want to tell you this morning is that to remove this passage from its original context is to miss the point of this passage entirely. See, normally we read this chapter in 1 Corinthians and we think of this as something so soothing and so beautiful. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, and we read that and we go, ah, so sentimental, so lovely, so beautiful. Love, true love. (laughs) Marriage, marriage is what brought us together today, right? That's the way we think about this passage. But to think about this passage outside of its context is to make an unbelievable mistake. It is to miss the rebuke that this passage was to the people who originally received this letter. You see, there is a reason this chapter is sandwiched in between chapter 12 and chapter 14 of the book of 1 Corinthians. See, Corinth was a very spiritually gifted church. 
Corinth was a very important city, an influential city, right in the middle of Greece. And so the church was full of successful and talented and gifted people and even spiritually gifted people. But Paul says that's not what it's all about. In fact, Paul's going to say this. Do not confuse spiritual gifting with spiritual maturity. Do not confuse spiritual gifting with spiritual maturity. And so he gives us some examples. The first example in verse 1 is tongues. Now this church was somewhat obsessed with tongues in Corinth. Even though Paul says this is like at the bottom level of importance in terms of spiritual gifts, they were obsessed with it. And so Paul says, listen, if I speak in the tongues of men and even of angels, but I don't have love, I'm a clanging cymbal. Imagine, if you will, an orchestra. And all of the other instruments were removed from the stage except for the cymbal. How annoying would that be? How are you enjoying the concert? Oh, goodness, put a stop to it. This is what we sound like, Paul says, when you exercise your gifts without love. You may be teaching, or you may be giving financially, or you might be even pastoring. If you do this without love, this is what you sound like, Paul says. Now, as a technical term, this would be a reference to pagan worship. In Corinth, they would oftentimes use a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal to call to worship the other heathens who were gathered at these temples. Paul is saying, when you're calling attention to your gifts like that, but you don't have love in your heart, then you are worshiping like all of the other pagans worship in Corinth. You're not worshiping like a Christian church. You're worshiping like the Gentile, like the heathen, like the pagan. Wow. Can you see how this is a bombshell? Can you see how this is a strong rebuke in its context? Then he goes on to say in verse 2, if you have gifts like prophecy and knowledge and faith, Without love, exercising those gifts, he says, are nothing. We saw last week the church at Corinth was a very gifted church. But here we see that you can be very gifted. And yet, without love, Paul says, your gifts don't matter at all to any degree. Even acts of ministry, I can... I can serve, you could serve, we could serve in the kids' program, you could serve in the nursery, you could get up here and sing on the worship team, you could give financially. If you do any of those things without love, Paul says they are equal to nothing. Dads, you know how this is true in our homes. We can do a lot of good things as men. We can work hard at our careers, we can provide Uh, for our families financially. We can be competent with our investments and our trades, but if our kids see us doing all of those things but we do not have love for them, what good are all those things to them? And then in verse 3, Paul goes on to say something that just rocks us to the core as here he talks about financial giving to the poor and even dying as a martyr. Paul here raises the stakes as high as he could possibly raise them. I mean, what more could you possibly do with your life than to give literally everything you have to the poor and to give up your life in martyrdom? You can do all of that, Paul says, and it would gain you nothing. Be very careful, Paul says. You can do acts of love without love. 
Now you might ask, well, why would someone ever do that? Why would someone give to the poor without love? Well, there are reasons. Uh, Sometimes people give to get something for themselves, a benevolent reputation in the community, or just to be a hero, and so that people will look up to you. That's not love for others. That's love for yourself. And Paul says, if you give like that, you gain nothing, nothing, zilch, nada, zero. Let me put a math equation up on the screen. Here's what he's saying. Anything minus love equals nothing. Anything minus love equals nothing. The point here is love is absolutely essential to spiritual maturity. Do you see what a bombshell verses one through three are? So here's what the Bible teaches, friends. Sometimes human beings can express great talent and great skill and even great gifting, but they can do it in such a way that they're not mature at all, or they could do it in such a way that they're not even in a right relationship with God. Think about Matthew chapter 7, a verse that haunts me. Jesus says, on the last day, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name do many miracles? And I will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. In other words, you might have been doing those things, but spiritually they actually meant nothing. My my favorite collection of books in my library are the works of Jonathan Edwards. He has a section of those works dedicated just to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And it's a collection of 15 different sermons he gave at his church just on 1 Corinthians chapter 13. A 15-week series just on this chapter. And as I've been reading that section just in preparation for this message, this quote really caught my eye and really bothered me. He says this, and he collected it in a book called Charity and Its Fruits. He says this, The spiritual gift of miracles or of speaking, does not change a person's inherent nature. A gift ability does not require a change of heart as love or holiness does. Gifts, he says, are like precious jewels with which a body may be adorned, but which does not alter the body's form. In contrast, he says, but the grace of God and its fruit turns the very soul into a precious jewel. So here's what the great Jonathan Edwards is saying, the greatest philosophical mind ever to come out of the United States of America. Great gifting does not necessarily imply you have a right relationship with God. That's the bombshell of 1 Corinthians 13. It is so easy as a Christian, as a leader, to think about great gifting as the measure of maturity. But Paul says that is not the right measuring stick whatsoever. There are people who have had gifts who don't even have a relationship with God. Uh, King Saul evidently was prophesying. He was not right with God. Judas was sent out with the rest of the 12 and given power to exercise demons and do healing miracles. In Matthew chapter 10, there's no evidence that he was in right relationship with God. Spiritual gifting does not necessarily imply that things are right between me and God. Let me put this on the screen. The measuring stick is off here. The mark of spiritual maturity is not gifting, it's love. The mark of spiritual maturity is not gifting. It is love. This is very important. What did Jesus say would be the mark of his disciples? He did not say, by this will all people know that you're my disciples if you have lots of spiritual gifts. 
He didn't say, by this will all people know that you're my disciples if you believe all the right stuff. He said, by this will all men know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. As a pastor, I can do this. I believe the Lord has gifted me with the gift of teaching. And I can get up here and explain things with clarity. And can I say with all transparency that I can exercise that gift of teaching when my heart is not right. I can even exercise a spiritual gift when I am not being a loving person or a loving husband or a loving father in those moments. It is possible to exercise gifts and not have love. So Paul says, don't you realize that? Love is absolutely essential as a mark of maturity. And so as we look at these first three verses, the question we have to ask ourselves is a very sober self-examination question. Do I have this love flowing in me? And what is this love? That leads us to movement two, the definition of love. There are several words for love used in the, the Bible, which was written in Greek behind our English word love. Just like the Eskimos have lots of different words for snow, we got one word, snow. They, they had lots of words for love. There was eros love, that was a romantic love, like the love between a boyfriend and a girlfriend, puppy love, pretty natural, pretty easy. Uh, uh, there's also phileo love, that's the, the brotherly love, that's a friendship love uh, that you have between a friend, and that, that also, that love's kind of natural, kind of easy. Storge love, that's the love between family members, moms and daughters and fathers and sons and husbands and wives, that's storge love, and that also uh, can be pretty natural, pretty easy. None of those words for love are used here. The word that's used for love in 1 Corinthians 13 is the Greek word agape love. Unlike all the other words for love, agape love is not easy. Agape love is intentional, it is self-sacrificial, and it is purposeful love. Uh, the greatest example of agape love in the Bible is in Romans 5.8. God demonstrated his own agape love toward us in this, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is the agape love of God, and this is the love that he wants to flow through us out toward others. Now, in this chapter, you might say, where did Paul get this definition for love? Did someone walk up to Paul and go, Paul, what is love? And he goes, well, love is patient. Love is kind. No. If you've been studying the book of 1 Corinthians, then you realize all of these subjects have already come up in the book of 1 Corinthians. The words themselves are the same words. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, he, Paul calls his audience puffed up. That's the same word used for proud in chapter 13. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he says, you're self-seeking. Same exact word used to describe what love is not in chapter 13. In chapter 7, he calls them rude. That's the same word for rude or dishonoring to others that he uses here in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Do you see how this is a bombshell? He's calling them out on their behaviors. Again, the church at Corinth, very spiritually gifted church, but they lack the most important thing, love. And so Paul gives them a definition. And he starts with this one. He says, love is patient. The word there means a forbearance with others. Love takes time with other people. Love moves slowly. Now, this is tough. It's tough for me because our busyness in our culture, we become so impatient with anything that doesn't quite go our way, especially if you're like me, you're like a task-oriented person. You make your list, you check your stuff off your list, you get it done. Sometimes things get in the way of our list and we think, man, I, you know, I, I just don't have time to love these people. I got so much to do, I'm too busy. But the truth is, friends, you live in New Jersey. You will never not be busy. 
we say everything with an exclamation point, right? Like I'm busy, got traffic and gas prices and taxes. Everything is always on. It's just, just, just go, go, go here. You will never not be busy. What you won't always have are the opportunities and the other people in your life that God has given you to love. Those opportunities will pass. And so love is patient with them. Recently, I had a car problem that I just couldn't figure out. The, the rear brakes on my car had this caliper that was just sticking, and I was getting frustrated by it. I had the right wrench. I was trying to twist this thing and get this caliper to loosen up, and, and my father-in-law, who's the most mature, loving person I know in my life, says, hey, I can come over and I can help you out with it. So he comes over. Over the last 25 years, he, I have spent a lot of time under a wheel well or under a hood with my father-in-law, just lots of projects and lots of problems, and, and he's always willing to help. And, I, and thank you so much. I love you so much. Happy Father's Day, Dad. So he comes over this day, and he starts working on it with me, and he tells me the same thing that he's told me over the years so many times that I just, I, I mean, I can't even count. He says, Dave, you need to be patient. I'm working on this thing. I'm working on this thing. I'm getting frustrated. I'm sweating. He's like, you got to have patience when you do these kind of jobs. And, and he gets in there, and somehow his hands are just gifted hands. And, and uh, I was in a rush. I, my life was rudely interrupted by this car problem, and I wanted to get it done. And he needs to keep reminding me, Dave, you got to have patience. And that's true. But friends, what is true with cars is infinitely more true with human beings. We need to be patient. You can't help people in a hurry. You can't listen to somebody in a hurry. You can't love someone in a hurry. Love is patient. Next, Paul says, love is kind. The Greek word is chrysostase. The word has this idea of warmth. It's cozy, like a blanket. Uh, the word gives you that feeling of snuggling up by the fire. That, that's what it feels like to be around a kind person. It means to be soft. Now, that doesn't mean there isn't a place for strong and careful rebuke. But even when there's correction, it's a, it's a love and firm and gentle kind of correction. It's kind. Third, he says, love does not envy. Envy is when I want something that somebody else has because I lack contentment in my life and what God has given me. And I begin to resent others for what they have. And I don't even want them to have it anymore. And I become envious. And envy is the root of all kinds of self-centered behavior in the world, which is the opposite of love. Next, he says, love does not boast. Those who learn to love are not name droppers. Those who really are loving people become humble. It's hard to know what a loving person has accomplished in their life because they don't tell you. You have to drag it out of them. They're not boastful, which is similar to the next characteristic. He says, love is not proud. He's got 15 characteristics that he's listing here. Love is not proud. The person who, who loves is not quick to magnify their successes or quick to defend their failures. Rather, this person who loves recognizes that all of their successes and all of their accomplishments are because of God and the gospel. And they know that they live by grace and in faith through their relationship with God. Next, he says, love does not dishonor others, or your Bible might say, love is not rude. Now, what does this mean? What does it mean to be rude? To be rude means to transgress the boundaries of culture, to go against what is culturally acceptable. At the heart of rudeness is a disregard for what is customary decorum. 
And why would someone be rude? Why would I talk back to my teacher in class when I'm not called upon? Or why would I, why would I say something rude to my supervisor? Why would I do that? The answer is it's about me. I want what I have to say to stick. I want what I have to say to hurt. I want it to cut. And it becomes a very self-centered kind of behavior, which is related to the next characteristic. Love doesn't do that. Love is not self-seeking. Love's not interested in self-promotion, self-regard, or self-exaltation. To put it simply, love is not about me. Love is not self-seeking. What a great reminder on Father's Day for us who are dads to put aside our preferences and to live a life of love and for something greater than ourselves. One of the Christian leaders who talked about the importance of fathers was James Dobson. I heard a story about him as a young boy regarding his own father. His father was a minister, and he was often away from the home, out doing traveling itinerant ministry. And it was getting really hard on the mom, really hard on the wife, really hard on the family. And his wife sat him down and said, I need you to come home. I need you home with these kids, with the family. And of course, his dad left that ministry to be more engaged at home. Now, I imagine that at the time, that was greatly disappointing to that dad. But I just want you to think about the impact of that one decision and the impact that that had on his son, who saw his dad love him in that way. And as a result, because of that impact, his son becomes James Dobson. How much of a greater impact was that one gesture of love on the part of that man? This is what love looks like. Love is the dad who puts aside his own wants, desires, and hobbies for the good of his family because he's decided to live for something bigger than himself. Listen to Dobson's advice. He says this, Dad, never underestimate the incredible influence you have on your children. It can make the difference between disaster and lives that are successful and pleasing to the Lord. You know, back before the world started really changing so rapidly, like back before 2008, there was a lot of sociological data, and it's still there, by the way. There's a lot, there was a lot of data that talked about the importance of fathers in the, in the home. But now, since the LGBT agenda has kind of sucked all the air out of the room, it's like we're not allowed to talk about the importance of dads anymore. It's like all we can talk about is toxic masculinity and the patriarchy and abuse of power. Nothing wrong with calling out those abuses of masculinity, but never at the expense of saying there is something of real value in a man of God, a great father, a servant leader, a godly husband, a godly dad. We need such men. That's a noble calling. In fact, we're beginning a men's mentoring initiative this fall at NBC called Radical Mentoring. And here's the reason. There's two groups of men in the church. There's a younger generation, men in their 20s, 30s, and 40s. You guys are still figuring out what life is all about, what it looks like, how to follow Jesus, and what it looks like to lead your families. And you probably have some head knowledge about these things, but you need someone to help you understand what it means to live it out practically in your real life. And then there's another group of guys in the congregation, older guys in their 50s and 60s and up, and they've been around the block a time or two, and they've gained valuable experience about what it means to be a man in this world and how to follow Jesus. And those guys have a passion to see the younger guys succeed in life in the context of a mentoring relationship. And so our heart is to bring those two groups together. And I mention that because if you're a younger guy and you want to be involved in a mentoring group, 
come and see me. We're going to launch them in September, and we'll tell you more about that. There's some information on our website that's really exciting. Back to our passage in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul goes on to say this, love is not easily angered. Now, the Bible does not teach that there's no place for righteous anger, but it does teach that we're not to be easily angered, that we're not to be quick to fly off the handle, to be hot-tempered. That's not love. If we're upset with someone, love is the choice not to make them our antagonist, but to see them as a fellow image-bearer of God and address their behavior in a kind and loving way. Our culture needs this message now more than ever. This doesn't mean that we have to agree with everybody and just sit down and sing kumbaya. We can disagree. In fact, we can show how to disagree. Uh, Let me share with you this quote from Francis Schaeffer, who talks about this concept. He says this, differences are not the end of love. They are the occasion for love. In other words, when there's a disagreement, when there's a difference, when there's a difference of opinion, That in itself is a golden opportunity, an opportunity that wasn't there before. Now there's an opportunity to show the world what it looks like to love each other and have a difference of opinion. Next, Paul goes on to say this. He says, love keeps no record of wrongs. Again, this doesn't mean that you can't confront someone when they are living in a way that's incongruent with their commitment to the Lord. Paul confronted the church at Corinth in chapter 5. What this means is that after you've had that hard conversation and apologies and forgiveness have been offered, you don't hold that against the person anymore. You don't keep a meticulous record of everything that person has ever done wrong with you. It's like the couple who came into the pastor's office for marriage counseling, and the husband says, you know, pastor, every time we get into an argument, my wife gets historical. He's like, you mean hysterical? No, no, no. The the guy goes, no, no, historical. Every time I do something wrong, she brings up every single thing I've ever done wrong for 30 years. That's not love. Love makes it right and then throws all the files away. Paul goes on to say this. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Friends, can I just pause and say, this is where our culture gets it so wrong. This is what's wrong with love is love. Love is love does not recognize that love does not delight in evil. If you truly love someone, you will never rejoice to see your loved one stumbling into sin. Paul tells the Corinthians in chapter 5, they are wrong for tolerating such behavior. Rather, love is when you rejoice when you see your loved ones walking according to the truth. Why? Because sin destroys people's lives. And so to rejoice with someone's sin is to rejoice in their destruction. That is not love. Paul goes on to finally say, as he gets to his crescendo here, love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. It never fails. Wow, what an unbelievable definition. What an incredible challenge. What a high calling. What a great reminder for us on Father's Day to us who are dads. It reminds me of the story of a man who was out with his young son hiking in the woods. And they came to a place where the climbing got hard and the climbing got rough and it was difficult and dangerous and the father was out front and he stopped for a minute because there was a bit of a fork and he was considering which way he should go and the son said from behind him, hey dad, choose the good path, I'm coming right after you. Choose the good path, dad, I'm coming right after you. 
Our children are coming right after us. They're going to follow in our steps. They, they need to choose the good path. They're always watching us when we do what is right and when we also do what is wrong. They watch the way we love our wives. They watch the way we honor God with our finances and with our time. They watch our hard work. They watch us even when we have difficult seasons in our lives. They are always watching. This is how we raise our children to maturity, by example. And this is why Paul says in that verse, verse 11, he says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. See, children are naturally self-centered beings. They're like spring-loaded to think only about themselves. This is the way human nature is. We're naturally drawn towards what's in it for me. And kids are naturally drawn towards what's flashy and what's exciting. But Paul says, listen, in the spiritual life, when we are less mature, we will get so focused on those flashy things, on those big giftings. Love, not giftings, is the essence of spiritual maturity. A few weeks ago, my wife and I went to go see the new movie Top Gun. I remember when I was a young boy seeing the original Top Gun. And most young boys my age at the time really liked that movie. We really liked it because we loved what we saw on the screen. What did we see on the screen as young boys? We saw explosions. We saw, we saw you know, bombs. We saw special effects. We saw airplanes. We saw action. We saw power. I feel the need. The need for speed. And as a young boy, that's what I was interested in as a child. Friends, that's 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. Power, exciting, big gifts. Now, I was talking to an individual in our church about Top Gun. Before I went to go see the movie, uh, this individual said, you know, I really, I love that movie. I said, can you remind me a little bit about, like, what it, it's been like 35 years. What, just before I go see the new one, what was, what was the other one about? And and this person began to explain to me that it was a love story. <laughs> I'm like, it was? <laughs> and then I began to think, oh, there was a girl. I, like, I, I'm sure I saw it as a young boy, but I completely forgot and kind of missed the whole point of that movie which was this story about, about this love story. Now, the, the second version, as a man, when I saw the, 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 the newest version this summer, I began to watch for other things besides F-18s and explosions and power. In this time, I, I came back as a mature man and I started looking at the character development and the relationships and the complications of life. Why? Because hopefully after 35 years, I grew up a little bit. This is what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 13. You're obsessed with the gifts. You're obsessed with the power. This is how children are. That's not the mark of maturity. Rather, the mark of growing up, Paul says, is love. Amen. Why is love so important? Because love is the only thing that lasts. Look at what Paul says here. He says, as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. See that? Even the best spiritual gifts, even the, the most amazing power displays 
someday will end. But not love. Love will last forever. Look what he says in verse 13. He says, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Why? Because one day our faith will not be faith anymore. It'll be sight. And one day our hope will not be hope anymore. It will be substantial reality right in front of us. But love is superior because we will continue to love from right now on into eternity. Love will last forever. And when we are fully mature, we will understand the nature of love. And one day, love will be perfect in heaven. And this is why the Apostle Paul seems to take like a right turn in this third section but it's not a right turn. Now, years ago, as I mentioned, Edwards preached this series on this one chapter in 1 Corinthians, and the climactic sermon in that series, the 15th sermon, was called Heaven is a World of Love. You can buy that sermon just by itself on Amazon. I studied that sermon. I was greatly helped by it as Paul in this passage points his readers towards the distant future, to what they're all aiming at, to what they're all headed toward, and that is the perfection of love. So notice how Paul describes the future here, the heavenly future with a few key images. First, he calls it the perfect. Verse 10, when the perfect comes. What is heaven? Heaven is the perfect. The Greek word is the teleon, the the design of things, the, the aim of things, the goal of things, the perfect. Heaven is when we get to that which our souls have been aiming for and hoping for and are purposed for. Heaven is the place you were designed for. It's the perfect. Earlier this week, my oldest daughter, Alex, was talking to me. And she said, Dad, I've been thinking a lot about something. I said, what? She said, animal intelligence. I said, why are you you thinking? My oldest daughter is great at trivial pursuit. She just kind of like gets interested in these topics. And so, so I'm like, why are you thinking about animal intelligence? She's like, I saw this movie called Blackfish. It was about these orca whales, and it was a documentary, and everybody knows SeaWorld and Shamu, but this movie was about a different whale uh, there named uh, Tilikum, and this whale had actually tragically killed three people. And it turns out that the reason why this whale was so violent was because the whale had been traumatized. The whale had been ripped away from its family and forced to live in this tank that was far too small and confining compared to what this whale was originally made for in the ocean. Now, in its element, this whale was perfectly happy and where it was designed to live. But outside of that, it was totally confined and totally constrained. Here's what the Apostle Paul is saying. We are all orca whales living in captivity. This is not the way it was supposed to be. But there is a place, he says. There is a place called the perfect. And that place is the very presence of God. Look at verse 12 with me. He says, for now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. For now, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Notice a few things about this verse. Notice, he says, we'll know fully as we're known. In the Bible, the word to know is a relational term. Think about how Adam knew his wife, Eve. And so what Paul is saying, that one day in heaven, we will experience God relationally and intimately in a way that is so profound, he can't even quite explain it. And what is God like? What's it like to be in a relationship with God? Well, 1 John 4 says, God is love. We'll be in a relationship with a God of perfect love. 
Now, everybody wants this. Everybody in this room wants this. Everybody wants to be in the presence of someone who loves them deeply and intimately and perfectly. Paul says, if you have hope in Christ, you will. Heaven, Edward says, is a world of love. It's a place where we say to God, God, you look beautiful today. And God turns around to us and says, so do you, my child. Heaven is a world of love. What is hell? It's just the opposite. Hell is a lovelessness. In hell, everyone's impatient. No one is kind. No one really knows you. Everyone is self-absorbed. Some of you know what that is because you've got a taste of hell on earth. Just imagine if that went on forever. Heaven is the opposite of that. Heaven is a world of love. It's a place of union and intimacy and relationality with God himself. This is what your soul longs for. This is what really matters, to be with him. For those of you who have teenagers as parents, you ever talk to your teenagers when they are making plans with their friends and you say as parents, hey, where are you going? And, and their answer sometimes confounds us when they say, out, you've been there. And what do they mean when they say that, out? What they mean is, I'm going to a place where my friends are. And it doesn't really matter where we end up. Because there is friendship and intimacy and connection. And wherever we end up, that's where I want to be. Friends, I want you to multiply that feeling times infinity. And that's what you're destined for one day in the presence of God himself. You are destined for real friendship and real relational intimacy with God. And then Paul uses this image of a mirror. We didn't really have mirrors like we do today back then. They were just polished metal, never a perfect reflection. You never knew exactly what you look like, which might be good for me. But anyway, so he says, we see things. It's like in a mirror. Literally in Greek, he says, we see things now enigmatically. But then Paul says, when we get there, he says, we're going to see face to face. A term, again, of deep intimacy with God himself. Think of how intimate we are when we bring our faces next to the face of another human being. Probably the most tear-jerking song about fathers and daughters is that song, Butterfly Kisses. If you're a dad and you listen to that song and you don't cry, you don't have a soul. You need prayer and maybe deliverance. But that song talks about the intimacy of a face-to-face relationship between a father and a daughter, a beautiful thing. Paul says that's what it's like to be in the very presence of God himself. One day you'll be face-to-face with God. This is why the psalmist says, Lord, I seek your face. This is what heaven is, friends. Heaven is not just the place where we cross over and we see our loved ones who have gone on before in Christ, though it is that. The most important face we long for is the face of Jesus Christ. As the song says, I can only imagine what it will be like when I walk by your side. I can only imagine what my eyes would see when your face is before me. Surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus, or in awe of you be still? Will I stand in your presence or to my knees will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to speak at all? I can only imagine. This is what theologians call the beatific vision or the visio dei, the vision of God, where we come face to face with our creator and our redeemer. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 earlier, as it is written, 
What no eye has seen, let me put this on the screen for you, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. This is our great hope. And the whole reason why we fail to love today is we settle for less than this. We settle for other idols. We settle for setting our face on something other than the one who created and redeemed us. Which brings us to a bit of crisis. Remember I said earlier that to understand this passage correctly was to understand that it was originally a strong rebuke. Because here's the problem. We long for this face, but if we're honest with ourselves, we also can't handle this face. So we avoid this face. Think of if you owe someone money and you don't have the ability to pay them back, what do you do? You avoid their face. This is a picture of humanity with God our creator. This is why it says no one can see the face of God and live. Let me put up this list here again, this definition of love. Yes, this definition of love is a high calling. Yes, it's a beautiful vision. But if we're honest with ourselves, friends, don't we also recognize that this list is devastating to us? Seriously? If you think of this passage as merely inspirational, you have missed the whole point of this passage. Always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Love never fails. If you think of this as a list, as a behavioral list that you're supposed to be keeping and you need to follow, you'll be devastated by it. No one can do this. You can't do this. I can't do this. Nobody can do this, not perfectly. So here's the gut check of this passage, the reality check. We want this kind of love. We may even demand this kind of love from others around us, but we, the truth is, we cannot love this way ourselves. And if we're honest, we need to read this list this morning and go, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. No one can do this perfectly. Except one. Except one. There was one, friends. Jesus Christ was the personification of love itself. Take a look at this definition, but just insert the word Jesus. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy. Jesus does not boast. Jesus is not proud. Jesus does not dishonor others. Jesus is not self-seeking. Jesus is not easily angered. Jesus keeps no record of wrongs. Jesus does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. Even when they all turned against him, Jesus always protected, always trusted, always hoped, always persevered. Jesus' love never fails. He has no rival. He has no equal. Now and forevermore, he reigns. What a beautiful name it is. What a beautiful name it is. The name of Jesus Christ, our King. So friends, the good news of the gospel is that all of us have fallen short and sinned against God. We could all try to take a rock and try to throw it from here to the Empire State Building, but we would all fall short. That's what sin is. It's our falling short of God's standard. That's the bad news. The worst news is that the wages of sin is death, that the paycheck for sin is eternal death, separation from God. The good news of the gospel is that God, because of his great love for us, sent his son Jesus to give us a great exchange. He lived the perfect life of love and, and actually offers to us a gift of his righteousness in exchange for our sin and our punishment on the cross. 
That's the gift of the gospel. We receive that gift by faith, by faith alone. Just, just how you trusted in that chair to hold your weight up today, you trust in Christ and his work on your behalf. That's what faith is. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the Lord Jesus. Friends, before love can ever be an action that you do, it first needs to be a person that you meet. Or if I could put it this way, before love can become a behavior by you, it must become a person to you. This is the good news. When we recognize our self-centeredness and we long for the one who can love us and forgive us and change our hearts, we turn to him and his arms of love are wide open. And when we understand this, we stop thinking like a child and we become a man. We stop thinking like a little boy and we become a man. We stop thinking like a little girl and we become a woman. This is the essence of spiritual maturity. And then we allow his love to begin to flow through us. And we say, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Let your love flow in me. And the more I get to know him, the more my love grows and develops and strengthens as his love begins to flow through me. Dads, the way we can have power to love our wives and our children and to love others is by looking to Jesus who does these things perfectly and then allowing him to let his love flow through you. What is a man? Does anyone know? Who is the prototype? To whom shall we go? It's the person of Jesus Christ. He's the essence of true manhood. He is what love looks like. This is the most excellent way. I'm going to pray for us as the worship team comes forward. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me for a word of prayer today? Lord Jesus, was there ever one who loved so deeply as you? Would you today, by the power of your Spirit, open up blind eyes, deaf ears, open up hard hearts, give us eyes to see that your life of love is to be our goal, that relationally being connected to you in love is our destiny, and you are our ideal. Make us a church into a people full of men and women, boys and girls, who live out this high calling of love. Help us this morning to see that of all the things we can do in this life, the greatest pursuit we can ever have is love. For we pray this and we ask this for Christ's sake and for his reputation. Amen.